I'm going to ask you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2 one more time. Matthew 2. Christmas 2023 is over, but here at Gateway, we are still talking about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We started walking through the Gospel of Matthew uh, the first Lord's Day in December, and we've been working through the genealogy and the birth narrative, focusing on Matthew's interest. I've mentioned a couple of different times that we, we sort of mix up the story in our mind from the scriptures and from different media presentations, and we have it all jumbled up, but we need to sometimes pay attention to what the author's interest is. And Matthew is focused on Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, and the fact that he appears at the climax of human history, which is why we are living in the last days. And we have seen that Matthew tells the story in a way that highlights and convinces us of Jesus' deity as well as his humanity. And we've seen it in the way Matthew constructs his genealogy. We've seen it in the way that he lays out the evidence for the virgin birth. That's really the central idea of his birth narrative in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. And in the way he demonstrates here in chapter 2 that Jesus was indeed born the king of the Jews. And Matthew has comforted us. He's caused us to celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ, both Son of God and Son of Man, both human and divine. He's also challenged us about how to live. Because if we've embraced this Christ, if he really is our king, we ought to be taking our cues from him as far as how we should follow him and how we should live. And we looked a little bit at, looked a little bit at Matthew's gospel along that line as well. We saw last week that if Jesus is indeed our king, as Matthew unmistakably illustrates for us in this chapter. We need to follow him as king. Well, we pray for his kingdom to come. And when we pray to the Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not only are we asking that the reign of Christ as king be made visible on earth in the coming of his kingdom, but also that we would faithfully carry out his will now. We can't pray that prayer sincerely unless we are doing everything in our lives right now to see God's will done through the person of Jesus Christ. Well, there's one more section in chapter 2 that we haven't yet covered. I want to look at that this morning before we come to the table. And once again, it focuses our attention on an aspect of Jesus as our Emmanuel. God with us. God, the transcendent one, becoming the imminent one, coming near us. And once again, this aspect of Jesus both comforts us and it challenges us. In Matthew 2, uh, in verse 19, Joseph has taken the family into the land of Egypt to hide the Christ child from the clutches of the evil Herod the Great. So it says here, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, saying, uh, Joseph, or he appeared to Joseph in a dream in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. That is, go back to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. The coast is clear. You can come back now. This is the third time, if you're tracking through the story, that the angel or an angel from the Lord appeared to Joseph in his dreams. I, I uh, got curious about this a little bit over the weekend, and I, from what I can tell, it's very unusual for an angel to actually appear in the dreams. Sometimes the angel's appearance is a little cryptic. We're not sure exactly how the angel appears, but it seems that most of the time angels appear 
in a vision or in front of the person. But to Joseph, this angel kept coming in his dreams. And Joseph is always immediately obedient to what God tells him through the angel, as he is here. So look at verse 21. He arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Now, verse 22 says, when they heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. I'm going to mention here, last week I said that Herod was such a powerful ruler. When he died, he divided his kingdom up between three of his sons. Archelaus was given control of Judea and Samaria and this, this area around Jerusalem, which included uh, land further south and land further north of Jerusalem. Now, I want to say Archelaus, just for a little bit of background here to help you understand a little bit what's going on in the text. Archelaus was, um, he was a real piece of work, okay? Um, he tried to rule with an iron fist, just like his father, Herod the Great, but people were not having it. I mean, he was far less capable of a ruler than Herod was, and they were fed up with that kind of leadership anyway. So in the first year of his reign, the Jewish people were revolting against uh, the Roman soldiers that Archelaus decided, I'll just place those around the city during the Passover to make sure there's no rioting or nobody's speaking bad about me. And uh, the people threw stones at the soldiers, and some of them were even injured. So Archelaus did a very Herod-like thing. He went in with his Roman horsemen and slaughtered 3,000 of them and chased the rest of them into the hills and sent out word, go home, you're not allowed back in Jerusalem. Now, Archelaus could not get control of this part of Israel, even though Caesar Augustus gave him ever, every opportunity to make control. Remember, Caesar knows uh, Herod, and he, he, he would love to see Herod's boys, you know, leading the, the nation. He thought Herod was doing a great job. And the territories that Archelaus ruled over were in complete chaos. The people hated him so much, they would not cooperate. So, so Caesar Augustus gave up on him, basically. And the historian Josephus says that in the 10th year of Archelaus's chaotic reign, he had a dream. And in his dream, he saw 10 ripe ears of corn and a bunch of, ox, bunch of oxen came up and devoured the corn. It kind of reminds you of the dream that Pharaoh's having in, in, in Genesis. And, and he called his advisors, this is Herod's son, he calls his advisors to interpret the dream. And one of them had the guts to say, you know, I think it means your reign is only going to last 10 years. So what was his 10th year? Five days later, Augustus banished him to Vienna of all places. I'd love to be banished to Vienna. Uh, but in, instead of uh, entrusting Jerusalem to another one of Herod's sons, Augustus decided, you know what, let's not have Herod's sons ruling over Jerusalem and that region. Let me appoint a governor from Rome instead. And this decision paved the way for a governor to come in by the name of Pontius Pilate. And the Jewish religion leaders, religious leaders, manipulated Pilate by threatening to revolt like they did under Archelaus. So when they brought Jesus forward to Pilate to have him crucified, and Pilate said no, basically, they said, you're no friend of Caesar. And they became violent and cried out, crucify him. And Pilate, it's why when you read the gospel there, he seems like he's pressured into giving the order to crucify Jesus. God knows this is all going to happen. He's orchestrating this from the very beginning to give to us his crucified son. But Joseph comes out of Egypt at the beginning of Archelaus' reign. So you can see why he would be afraid. 
hearing what he's heard already about his reign, to go into the area with this ruthless, sporadic son of Herod. I mean, what if the rumor got around that Herod was trying to kill this boy and this boy was back with his family? So Matthew continues, being warned in a dream, this is dream number four with an angel in it, Joseph withdrew to the district of Galilee. And here is the verse I'd like us to focus on this morning before we come to the table. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, something you notice when you step back and look at the entire chapter is that Matthew has some explaining to do. Matthew has presented Jesus as the true king of Israel. I mean, the genealogy connects him to the line of David. He's born in Bethlehem like the prophets foretold. The magi come to worship him with, with gifts like a king. Uh, they, they saw the sign in, in the heavens, and, and you can tell by Herod's reaction that he was nervous because he knows he has usurped the throne, that the true king has actually come. And all of these observations, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, point to Jesus as the true king. But if Jesus is really the true king, why does the holy family have to flee by night to escape the wrath of Herod all the way to Egypt of all places? But can't God protect his Messiah? Matthew explains in verse 15 of this chapter that this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. God had to get his son to Egypt to call him out of Egypt, Matthew says. Well then, why was Herod allowed to slaughter all the children? If this is the true Messiah, why would God allow this, allow this, this terrible pall to be placed upon the, the event of Jesus' birth by such a horrible act. Matthew explains that too in verse 17. He says that this fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Okay, well, what about the place that Joseph and Mary went to live after they came out of Egypt? By the way, you don't even know when you're reading Matthew's Gospels that they're from Nazareth. You realize that? In Luke, they start out at Nazareth, they end up at Nazareth. Matthew, it's almost like, oh, I got an idea, let's go to Nazareth. <laughs> and, and that's all you get from Matthew. And as we saw before, Matthew only brings up these points that are so familiar to us because they're only necessary in the narrative when he gets to them. And here it is necessary that he brings up uh, Nazareth. They're going there, as it seems, out of fear to avoid ending up in the area close to Archelaus. Instead of going back to Bethlehem, the city of David, they take Jesus to this little, no-account city called Nazareth. And this would become Jesus's hometown. In fact, he would become known as Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth functioned like his last name so that Jesus would always be associated with this town. Once again, Matthew has some explaining to do. How could the king of Israel grow up in this obscure, Gentile-ridden town like Nazareth, situated, as we might say, on the other side of the tracks? That's what Nazareth was. This is the town where Nathaniel says in John 1:46, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? 
So Matthew explains that Jesus was taken into Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene, literally a Nazorian, someone from the city of Nazareth. That's what the Greek word means. This is Matthew's explanation. This is his apologetical defense. Just like he defended with the Old Testament prophets the other ideas, this is his apologetical defense for why Jesus the king would hail from such an awful little place. The prophets foretold this, but herein lies a problem, seemingly. Uh, there does not be, uh, seem to be any verse in the Old Testament stating that the Messiah would hail from Nazareth. In fact, the city of Nazareth is never even mentioned in the Old Testament. Archaeological evidence suggests, in fact, that the area of Nazareth may not have even been occupied until sometime after the writing prophets were off the scene. So how then can Matthew state that this prophecy is actually fulfilled by Jesus' settling in Nazareth. Well, to begin with, I want you to notice a key difference. I'm going to do this really quickly, by the way. Okay, we're not going to go really into the weeds here, but we're going to skate across the surface for just a second. I want you to notice a key difference between Matthew and what he says that Jesus fulfills in his prophecy here and the way Matthew speaks of the fulfillment of prophecy other places in his gospel. And we'll just look at a couple of examples. We go back again to chapter 1 in verse 22. Matthew explains, and this took place to fulfill, and notice the language, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, singular, saying. Now notice the word saying. It's in brackets. You know why? It's because it's not in the ESV. I'm not adding to the word of God, okay? Uh, this is legantas in the Greek text. It's there. It's saying. It's sort of a redundant thing. A lot of times in Greek, you'll say that somebody said something saying, and it's, it's a redundant. It's called a, it's called a pleonastic participle, if anybody cares, okay? It means it's, an ex, it's, it's extra, okay? That, and it's sort of like a quotation mark. Uh, the, the, this is what to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet quote, and then he says what the prophecy says. And here uh, he quotes Isaiah 7, 14, uh, the, about the, the virgin giving birth to a son. Now, look again at chapter 2, verse 15, where we find the same fulfillment formula. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet saying. It's exactly the same. And what he says here is a direct quote from Hosea 11, verse 1. Now look at Matthew 2, 17. Then was fulfilled what was, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying. And again, every time I say saying, I'm not, I'm not adding something. It's there in the Greek text. It's the ESV just doesn't choose to translate this particular word in, in their translation. But here he's quoting directly from Jeremiah 31, verse 15. This is the way Matthew introduces the fulfillment passages every time. In fact, we could keep going throughout Matthew's gospel. There's five more times I could show you, which are the other five times besides what we see in chapters 1 and 2, where Matthew quotes something and says it's fulfilled from the Old Testament. And every time it is identical to this formula, except for one place. And that is in Matthew 2, verse 23. In this place alone, Matthew speaks, notice, of the fulfillment of the prophets, plural. And instead of using the word saying, this is the only time in the Greek New Testament he uses a word that we could translate as that, which you do see in the translation. He doesn't quote directly, in other words. 
he is saying that this is what the prophets in general are saying about this coming king. The verse literally reads that it might be fulfilled which was spoken through the prophets that, Naz- uh, that a Nazorian he will be called. Somebody who would be from a town like Nazareth. So how do the prophets in general say that he will be a Nazorian, especially when Nazareth practically didn't even exist when the prophets wrote? It's a very difficult question, but I'm going to give you a couple of different views that are based on wordplay in the scripture. For example, Nazareth is close to the word Nazarite. In fact, some people are confused about that. They think, well, Jesus was a Nazarite because it says he would be a Nazarene. That's completely a different thing, okay? Um, a, a Nazarite was somebody who would take a special vow before the Lord, and there were certain things they would not do. And if you know the story of Samson, they're not allowed to cut their hair. They're not allowed to touch things that are dead. They're not allowed to drink wine. Those three things, they would, they would shame themselves by growing their hair long, because it, even Paul says in, in Corinth, right, that it's a shame for a man to have long hair. It's a, it's a sign of humility. Uh, and uh, they weren't supposed to touch things that were dead, and they weren't supposed to drink wine. And as far as we can tell, looking at Jesus' life, he was not keeping a Nazarite vow. But there are prophets in the Old Testament that speak of the coming Messiah as being consecrated to God. So you might be able to say in a general sense that he was a a, a Nazorian in the sense that he was a Nazarite, but that's really not what the word means. So there's another idea, which is really attractive, suggested by scholars that says that Matthew may possibly be playing on a different Hebrew word, the word for branch, which is not nazer, it's actually netzer, but it's close. And there are three Old Testament prophets that picture the coming Messiah as the branch. And some of you can already think of what some of those are from Isaiah 11 and from Zechariah. Um, he's, He's the branch of Jesse. He's the righteous branch in the Old Testament. However, the problem with both of these wordplay views is that it makes the fact that Jesus settled in Nazareth kind of just irony, okay? Oh, they said this about him, and lo and behold, he ends up in a place called Nazareth, a Netzareth, maybe, you could say. I mean, even if the, the name Nazareth came from the word branch, which no one really knows, there is nothing about this town that connects Jesus to the branch of Jesse. That would have been Bethlehem. That's where he would have been coming out of to begin his ministry. But that's the area that Joseph was trying to get away from when he comes to Nazareth. I think a more satisfying solution lies in the fact that the city of Nazareth was viewed as non-important, obscure, even unpleasant. In those days, to be referred to as a Nazorian was to be associated with the lowly in culture. The, the people that were forgotten, the, the people from the hicks, the people that nobody thought of, the people in low society. Perhaps then Matthew is referring to the fact that several prophecies in general speak of the Messiah as someone who would not be celebrated by high society. Isaiah says that the Messiah would be despised and rejected. Zechariah depicts the Messiah as a lowly figure whom people would reject, who ultimately would be struck down in Zechariah 9 and 11 and 12 and 13. This view explains why Jesus' hailing from Nazareth would actually fulfill what the prophets said. It also fits with Matthew's statement that Jesus shall be called a Nazorian because Jesus became known as a person from the lowly city of Nazareth. People commonly referred to him by the city, 
throughout his life. Pilate's inscription on the cross reads, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Even after his resurrection, Jesus continues to be known as one from Nazareth. He's described in this way in the preaching of the apostles. In fact, he describes himself as Jesus of Nazareth when he arrests Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul says, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuted. That is stunning to me that he hails from and connects himself to this no-account town in the north of Israel because he is God with us. He is God with the lowly. He is God with the guilty. He is God with the unworthy. I was talking with someone who said that she had been living in a tiny high-rise studio apartment and some friends came to visit from kind of a small town and they were like, wow, you have a doorman and he, he sits at a desk. He opens the door for you. And they went up the elevator and went out on this balcony area. And they were like, wow, you can see the whole city from here. And they thought, oh my goodness, I didn't know you were so wealthy. I didn't know you had all this money. Well, you know, a studio apartment is only like 500 square feet. And uh, it, it's just really difficult to even own or, or, or have anything that you can rent uh, in, in cities like that. But suddenly she was really embarrassed at the thought that she thought she was just living at and just getting what they possibly could could. And these uh, older friends of hers that she hadn't seen for a while thought that she was so well off. But then she and her husband were invited to a wedding where the bride was from a very wealthy family. If I know most of you very well, probably we would all say that. The bride told her, this is a black tie event. So she asked the question, oh, so that means my husband needs to wear a black tie? And she was the, the, the bride-to-be was really confused and a little offended. She said, why would she not know that that means it's a full tux? And uh, every, some of you maybe didn't even know that, right? I had to look it up. Uh, you had to have a full tux on, and, and she had to buy this really expensive dress just to go to the wedding. He wasn't even, her husband wasn't even in the wedding. He was just attending the wedding. I mean, it was crazy expensive, this huge cathedral they got married in. And the reception, they, they literally rented the whole floor of this giant, expensive high-rise in the middle of the city. And in the conversation, the bride said things like, um, so what country club are you members of, you know? And uh, she, she also said this, I was told, she said, oh, my friend always copies me. In high school, she got the same Mercedes that I did, but it was a year older, and I'll never let her forget that. <laughs> a totally different world, okay, than, than we're a part of. But, you know, there are different perceptions of social and income status in society. And no matter how well off we are in terms of the world's wealth, we tend to look above us and think, wow, those people up there, and even we might envy them, but then we tend to look below us at people who are belief, uh, beneath our level, and we like to be seen with people above our station. But sometimes we're ashamed to be seen with people below our station. It's all relative, too. It's relative to where we happen to be, what our perception is. And I think how that must grieve Jesus of Nazareth. How can we think this way? We belong to Jesus the Nazorian the one who identified with a town none of us would care to live in. 
the one who ate with notorious sinners, the one whose feet were anointed and kissed by a former prostitute. And when he would preach, great crowds would follow him. We get the idea, wow, he was really popular. But then you start looking at who those people are. They're the ones who were downcast. They're the ones who had needs. They're the ones nobody else wanted. They were the lame. They were the sick. They were the needy. They were hurting. Do you know how we recoil in our spirit at times when a homeless person approaches us in a parking lot asking for money? Or when we stop at a traffic light and somebody is standing there holding a sign, asking for money. And of course, we reason within us, well, you know, they could be working. They're making more money than I am. And we, we, we kind of go through this little routine uh, in our mind. But those are people we perhaps should have a conversation with about the gospel. But uh, if we're like most people, we would be like ashamed for other people to see us having a conversation. Let's we be thought of on that stratum of society. Because in order to have a genuine conversation, we have to identify with them. We have to step into their world. And others from our world will see that we have stepped into their world, and they might criticize us. Uh, Brian, when he read Philippians 2, reminded us this morning that Jesus, who came from a social stratum that is infinitely beyond the richest position we can possibly imagine, did not even consider equality with God a thing to be held onto. But he emptied himself. I love the King James here, although it doesn't get exactly at the verb. But the King James says, he made himself of no reputation. He became a slave, it says. He came to earth and went to the bottom floor of the social ladder. That's your Lord. That's our Lord. That's your king, the man from Nazareth. And as someone from the lowest stratum, he went even further than that. Paul says in Philippians 2 that we just heard a little while ago, he became obedient to the point of death, even death by crucifixion, even death on a cross. As difficult as it is for most of us to imagine what it would be like to be crazy rich, for us to comprehend the sheer depth that Jesus descended for us is really an impossibility. I mean, it, it is unthinkable then that you and I who claim to love and worship the Savior would think so highly of ourselves that we would not be humble enough to love certain people, even in our own church, or serve certain people, or forgive certain people or lower ourselves to come into the homes of certain people in our community, or to reach out to them and minister, lest we taint our reputation. After all, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Aren't we humbled by this? Or do we think, of course Jesus would be proud to have me as a brother. <laughs> you know? Of course he would be proud to have me as a sister. Our behavior toward one another in the body of Christ and the way we reach out to the community needs to reflect the fact that we have been eternally saved by a man who grew up learning carpentry in a low-life Gentile-ridden town called Nazareth. And he went with that for his whole ministry. Jesus never said, well, you know, actually, I was born in Bethlehem. You know David's town? I don't think he ever said that to anybody. If they say, oh, you're from Nazareth? Well, you know, I was, I was born in Bethlehem. And, and one day I'm going to reign in Jerusalem, by the way. So, uh, you know, um, he never tried to pass himself off as being from a better postal code. 
And the prophets hinted at this by the fact that they said he would inhabit this lowly station. He would be, as it were, the Messiah from Nazareth. And he would save all of the other Nazoreans, like you and me, if we were to place our faith in him. And they too would be called to serve as he did. He is, he is our Emmanuel. He is God with us. Us. And if we know this Emmanuel, if we are living for him now, how can we possibly be ashamed to be with one another or to be with unbelievers? How can we possibly be ashamed to serve one another? You know, this is the first lesson that Jesus ever taught the church. I'm going to uh, just review this really quickly. And it was because it, it's on the night he was betrayed. When he's going through the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper. Remember what he does, does before this. That this is right after everybody has rejected him. You read John chapter 12. He had done all these signs in front of the people. He came unto his own. His own did not receive him. They finally said, no way, we're not having you. And later on in John's gospel, he literally said, they, the people literally, literally cried out, we have no king but Caesar. That's chilling that they would say that to their king. Crucify him. But on that night, the night before he was going to be betrayed and, and arrested and beaten and crucified, Jesus then gathers the small group together, the 12 of them. One of them isn't even a believer, Judas. He gathers them together and something was going on in the life of the disciples before that. We had our deacons retreat yesterday, and we, we walked through a little bit of the, these passages where the, the disciples were sort of having this wrestling match about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And of course, you remember James and John's mom comes and kneels before the Lord, which is no pressure at all, <laughs> and says, would, would you let my sons be on your right or your left when you come into your kingdom? And that passage in Matthew 20 says that other disciples were moved with indignation. They were like, how dare they? That's really low to get your mom to come and, and to put pressure. And so in the upper room, they're all thinking this kingdom's going to come, and they're, they're, you know, they're probably kind of trying to sit close to Jesus or trying to make themselves worthy of, of being this. And, and without saying a word. John 13 says that Jesus got up and he took off his outer garment and he put a towel around himself, which was what you would do if you were a slave. And he took a basin of water and it says he knelt down and he began to wash the disciples' feet. I, and, and I don't know if they had pins back then, but you could have heard one drop, you know, uh, because they're probably like completely silent. And Peter's the one that breaks the silence, remember? He says, he says in, in the Greek, you know, you double up everything for emphasis. He's like, Lord, Lord, you will never, never wash my, my, the feet. <laughs> he says, literally, he's like, no, 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 that's not going to happen. And, and, and Jesus goes through washing Peter's feet. He washes Judas's feet that night. And he gets done, and they're all watching him, and he puts the towel away, and he puts the robe back on, he sits down, and he says, now, do you know what I just did to you? He said, you call me Lord and Master, and you're right, because I am. He was, the, he was the Lord from Nazareth. And he said, if I'm your Lord and Master, and I can wash your feet, surely you can wash one another's feet. That's what Jesus said is high society. When you are as low as you possibly can to say, can I meet the needs of other people? In the sight of God, that is what is important. And you know why? Jesus did this for us. He has never asked any of us to do anything that he didn't already do himself. 
when we think about the table, we think about his sacrifice, we have to think about him as a savior, not yet having come in the clouds of glory, although that will be an amazing vision that we will see. But first, coming as a lowly servant so that he could reach out to Nazorians like us and bring us to himself. And as we gather around the table to identify with Jesus as our lowly Savior, by claiming that we have placed our faith in him, we have to also identify with Jesus in a real way throughout the week when we are committed to serving others like he was, when we imitate our Emmanuel by entering into the lives of others like he entered into our life. And if he's your king this morning, let's love him and serve him as our king in the way that he taught us to love and serve one another. Can we have our heads bowed and our eyes closed for just a few moments?